Florida Frontiers, the weekly radio magazine of the Florida Historical Society, is made possible in part by the Department of State Division of Historical Resources and the State of Florida. It's also made possible by the Jesse Ball DuPont Fund, the Rossiter House Museum and Gardens in O'Galley, and by Florida's Space Coast Office of Tourism, representing destinations from Titusville to Cocoa Beach to Melbourne Beach. This is Florida Frontiers, the weekly radio magazine of the Florida Historical Society, on the web at myfloridahistory.org. I'm Ben Brokemarkle, and coming up on the program, on Christmas night 1951, a bomb exploded under the home of educator and civil rights activist Harry T. Moore. The announcement was made by my uncle at the train station that the house had been bombed. My dad was dead and my mother was in the hospital. We'll hear the words of soldiers in Florida at Christmas time during the Second Seminole War. In later years while he was in Florida, even though it was Christmas, generally they were involved in some sort of military engagement. Many people enjoy a feast of seven fishes as part of their Christmas celebration. We'll have a look at sport fishing in Florida. All that ahead on Florida Frontiers. It seems I hear Harry Moore from the earth, his voice still cries. No bomb can kill the dreams I hold, for freedom never dies. Freedom never dies, I say, freedom never dies. No bomb can kill the dreams I hold, for freedom never dies. It happened in Florida, the land of flowers. It was on a Christmas night. Men came stealing through the orange grove. Men of hate carrying dynamite. It was to a little cottage, the family in the name of Moore. At the window hung sprigs of holly, a fine wreath at the door. It was on a Christmas evening and the family prayers were said. Mother, father, daughter, and grandmother went to bed. The father's name was Harry Moore of the NAACP. He fought for the life for us to live. Black folk must be free. It seems I hear Harry Moore from the earth, his voice still cries. No bomb can kill the dreams I hold, for freedom never dies. Freedom never dies, I say, freedom never dies. No bomb can kill the dreams I hold, for freedom never dies. The Ballad of Harry Moore by Langston Hughes tells the story of slain civil rights activist and educator Harry T. Moore, who was killed when a bomb exploded under his home in Mims, Florida, on Christmas night, 1951. His wife Harriet died nine days later from injuries sustained in the blast. The Moore's only surviving daughter, Juanita Evangeline Moore, arrived at the home site from Washington, D.C., two days after the bombing. Photographs from the Florida State Archives show what she saw that day, a home so severely damaged by the bomb that it was knocked off of its foundation. A replica of the Moore family home now sits on the site where the original family home once stood. I spoke with Evangeline Moore while sitting inside the newly constructed replica of her family home. One can only assume that as Ms. Moore looks around the reconstructed house that it brings mixed emotions for her. Yes, but mostly pleasant ones because uh, it looks so much 
nicer. I remember when I came home uh, that Christmas, I arrived on the 27th of December, and one of the first stops we made after the announcement was made by my uncle at the train station that the house had been bombed, my dad was dead, and my mother was in the hospital. I did come back to the house. Uh, it was, I can't, I can't explain the feeling that I had. I walked in the front door, and as you can see, I can see my parents' bedroom. Big hole, and the the mattress and the bed and everything was in that hole, and parts of the ceiling rafters was all there. Um, I walked to the dining room, looked in our bedroom, my sister's in my bedroom, and I saw that uh, her, her bed was really under the double windows in there. Um, it was filled with just finely slivered glass. And I knew at that moment that had I been home, she would have been dead also, so I, I couldn't go any further. So to come back and see it looking very much like the house was, it's very comforting. After seeing her family home nearly destroyed, Evangeline Moore never returned. There are photographs of Evangeline Moore as a young girl in and around her family home, sitting on the front porch and at the dining room table. Now that the replica of her family home is complete, she says it allows her to focus on pleasant memories. I don't know really how to explain, but there was so much love and 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 just just a house full of love. And of course, I helped my dad a lot with the work that he was doing with the NAACP and the Progressive Voters League. My sister was an avid reader, and she took very little part in any of the work that Dad was doing, she, she was always in a corner somewhere reading a book. Uh, but the, the, the love between my sister and me was something that was very, very unusual, even though we were very different in nature. Um, and my mother, I mean, she was, she was an absolute angel. And I, I can just remember the, the love and the warmth that surrounded me while I was here. And my, my parents were very affectionate, both to my sister and me and to themselves, because I remember oftentimes just we were walking through the house, and I, I could actually see my parents in any room in the house, and they would be embracing. And I thought, that's something that doesn't happen too often. But it has, it has gone with me throughout my lifetime. I was never fortunate to have that type of relationship. But I remembered the, the love and warmth that I felt in this house and the caring that um, coming back and seeing it very much like it was is, is a tremendous, tremendous uh, joy and a comfort to me. An antique typewriter sits on a small table next to where Evangeline Moore and I spoke. Harry T. Moore was a prolific letter writer, calling for investigations into lynchings in Florida and working for the NAACP. 
While he traveled around the state registering African Americans to vote and encouraging membership in the NAACP, he did his writing from his home in Mims. Evangeline Moore says she didn't realize the significance of his work at the time. No, I didn't. He was just to me. He was just daddy, and I knew. I mean, I knew that he was doing some work, but I didn't rem- recognize the the tremendous effect that it was having on citizens of America until after he was dead, and I. Was you know after actually after Ben Green wrote his book, it was only then that I realized the magnitude of the work that my dad had done. Although I helped him because I can remember running off sample ballots on the ditto machine and addressing envelopes and licking envelopes and licking stamps, and of course always trailing behind my dad when he would go to the post office to mail them. I knew he was doing something that was very important, but um, I just didn't at that time realize exactly the magnitude of what he was doing. The Harry T. and Harriet V. Moore Cultural Complex includes a civil rights museum as well as the Moore family home replica. Most recently, the Moore Center unveiled a meditation garden, reflecting pool, and gazebo. Water flows over quotes from Harry T. Moore and Martin Luther King, Jr. The story of Harry T. Moore has gained much more recognition over the past decade, beginning with the Ben Green book *Before His Time: The Untold Story of Harry T. Moore, America's First Civil Rights Martyr*, and the PBS documentary *Freedom Never Dies*. Annual recognitions include a memorial at the Moore Grave Site and the Moore Heritage Festival of the Arts and Humanities. Although all this is a step in the right direction, Evangeline Moore says her parents still don't get the recognition they deserve. They deserve a whole lot more. They really do. It, he he has not really been given the recognition that he should have, particularly here in the United States. This is a start, but he. I mean, he should be. He should be far. I mean, there should be stories about him, even above Martin Luther King, because Dad laid the foundation for what Martin Luther King ultimately was able to do himself. And I think it's a shame that uh, every time Black History Week, um, a month, and all this stuff, Dad should be at the top of the list when you start talking about people who gave their lives. So that black people could have equal rights. While there is still much to be done, Bill Gary of the North Brevard NAACP says awareness about the Moors is growing. There has uh, been、um, quite a bit of progress along those lines here、uh, in recent years. Uh, uh, one of the things that I think、um, is going to help us tremendously、um, is、uh, we happen to have an opportunity to meet with. Dr. Lonnie Bunch, who is director of the National African American Museum of History and Culture in Washington D.C. at the Smithsonian,、uh, we gave him a presentation about the Moors and asked、um, for his consideration in including the Moors in the new、uh, National Museum that's going to be built on the Washington Mall.、Uh, he was receptive to that idea, and、uh, over some months of correspondence, has assured us that the Moors would have a place. 
Uh, our task now is to develop uh, a appropriate presentation uh, that would go into that space uh, in the new National Museum there. Young African Americans today are looking at race much differently than previous generations. Evangeline Moore says that having an African American president demonstrates limitless opportunities, but that young people need to remember that the work of her father and others made Barack Obama's presidency possible. I'm just so elated uh, that President and Mrs. Obama are in the White House with their daughters, and um, there are a lot of observations that I make daily. the, the, the relationship and the love and affection that I can see which transpires between President Obama and his wife and his two little girls reminds me a lot of the relationship that my mother, my father, my sister, and I had. The Moore Cultural Complex is located on Freedom Avenue in Mims, just north of Titusville in North Brevard County. So if you see our Harry Moore walking on a Christmas night, don't you fear and run and hide, he has no dynamite. For in his heart is only love for all the human race. All he wants is for each of us to have our rightful place. And this he says, our Harry Moore, as from the grave he cries. No bomb can kill the dreams I hold, for freedom never dies. Freedom never dies, I say, freedom never dies. No bomb can kill the dreams I hold for freedom This is Florida Frontiers, the weekly radio magazine of the Florida Historical Society. I'm Ben Broatmarkle. Visit us on the web at myfloridahistory.org. You can find great books about Florida history and culture, check out our video, audio, and print resources, and much more. While you're there, become a member of the Florida Historical Society and get our journal, The Florida Historical Quarterly. That's myfloridahistory.org. I'll be home for Christmas You can plan on me Please have snow And mistletoe And presents on the tree Christmas Eve will find me where the love light gleams. I'll be home for Christmas if only. Joining us now is Ben DiBiase, Director of Educational Resources for the Florida Historical Society and archivist at the Library of Florida History in Cocoa. 
Fort Christmas was constructed on December 25, 1837, during the Second Seminole Indian War, but Ben, it wasn't the only fort built during this period. Yeah, that's right. Uh, during the Second Seminole War, uh, the federal government learned quickly that they had to spread their troops out uh, as wide as they could and sort of cast a wide net if they were going to have any luck at finding the Seminoles, you know, the, the very small bands of Seminoles. So what they did was set up um, three major columns that sort of moved south through the peninsula. Uh, and on that easternmost column through what was considered the Indian River country, you know, through parts of uh, Flagler County down into Volusia, Brevard, and uh, Indian River County, uh, there were a number of, of small forts that were built uh, around the same time, 1837, 1838. Um, one of those forts was, was named Fort Anne, and it was actually in uh, what is now North Brevard County, actually part of the Merritt Island National Wildlife Refuge, just north of, of NASA. Uh, and this small fort, it was actually more of a, of a stockade. It was very, a very crude structure, um, and it was more of a, a, a kind of transition point from the Mos Mosquito Lagoon area into the Indian River area. Uh, and these columns of soldiers at that time were moving, uh, they were utilizing the Indian River Lagoon, this north-south waterway, to travel as uh, quickly and efficiently as possible down through the, through the interior. Um, and, and that was, again, part of that, that system of forts that would have been used to help um, supply these large columns of troops as they, as they moved through the, uh, the really unexplored uh, interior of Florida. You have the personal journal of a surgeon who was a soldier in Florida moving south through the state in the, the Second Seminole Indian War. Who was he? Uh, this is a really interesting uh, collection of, of memoirs. Uh, a gentleman was named uh, Jacob Rhett Mott, and he was actually a native of, of Charleston, a, a Harvard-educated, uh, very uh, um, aristocratic uh, um, uh, society uh, person who, who decided um, in the 1830s on a whim, essentially, to join the U.S. Army. <laughs> and he had studied uh, at a, a medical college in Charleston for a little while, joined the Army in 1836. And this is shortly after uh, the what we call the Dade Massacre, the end of 1835. And the Second Seminole War was really starting to, to heat up in 1836. So he really joined at, a, at a, uh, kind of an interesting time. And at that time, the, the U.S. government had uh, allocated huge resources, uh, military resources, into Florida. And he was one of those those resources that were called upon, and, and uh, he was uh, attached to one of these columns, uh, heading south into the peninsula, and uh, and found himself at uh, at Fort Anne in uh, December of 1837. So from this journal, it seems as though the the soldiers had a, a pretty de decent Christmas in Florida, even though it was wartime. I'd say so. And, and when we think about the Second Seminole War, we generally think about the hardships that, that a lot of these soldiers faced, which, which certainly occurred. I mean, it was very, very difficult uh, living at that time. And, and many of the soldiers, in fact, died of disease. Uh, but, but during the winter campaigns, when most of the action essentially was happening, um, throughout this journal, you, you know, you'll see Mott sort of talking about, uh, he mentions the Fourth of July quite a bit, but he always talks about Christmas every year that he was in Florida. And we have a really interesting passage from uh, December of 1837 when he was uh, uh, spending at least a week, I believe about a week, two weeks at, at Fort Ant. So they had a little bit of, uh, of time to kind of sit back and relax. There wasn't a whole lot of action going on. They were just drilling during the day. Uh, but, uh, but on Christmas Day, uh, they were allowed essentially to have the day off. And I'll read a quick passage here. They talk a little bit about their, their Christmas dinner, which was a, a little bit different than the traditional uh, uh, you know, New England Christmas dinner. Uh, but he says here, We reveled upon gopher soup and whisker toddy, uh, which were the chief luxuries that graced our board. Uh, by and by, as regards to gopher soup, he says here, No epicure in the world but would smack his lips. 
could he only get a taste of this rare dish no only known only in Florida? And again, he talks about drinking whiskey along with the, that gopher soup. Uh, but they, he goes on in other passages. They, they go chasing after snakes and, and uh, uh, they hunt owls and, and egrets and some of the other birds that um, lived around the, the Mosquito Lagoon area. Um, but he talks a little bit, sort of uh, reflects on Christmas. And he says, uh, but then it was Christmas, which only comes once a year. And to many of us about those times only came once in several years. So this is kind of interesting. You know, he talks about um, in later years while he was in Florida, even though it was Christmas, generally they were involved in some sort of military engagement. Uh, they were marching, they were drilling, because during the, the winter months, that was when the, the military, the U.S. military moved um, uh, very often. You know, they, they took advantage of the, of the, uh, of the weather. Um, so they, they really didn't get a, a chance uh, to kind of sit down and, and enjoy Christmas. Um, but he also talks about this uh, feast of reason and flow of soul uh, and, and uh, music. Essentially, there, was, there were a few of the uh, soldiers who uh, got a little too much whiskey and decided they could, uh, they could sing. And uh, he goes on to sort of describe their, uh, their revelries into the night and how they uh, um, probably disturbed some of the owls who would hoot at them periodically. <laughs> So even during this uh, this long extended conflict, uh, these guys seem to uh, enjoy their holiday. I'd say so. In fact, uh, a few days later on New Year's Day, they were again given a little bit of time off, and uh, he mentions taking a uh, uh, taking a dive into the Atlantic, which uh, back in Massachusetts uh, would have been impossible, but uh, at a uh, at a, a balmy 80 degrees, uh, they were able to uh, to strip down and enjoy a day at the beach. Well, thanks, Ben, and I hope you're having a happy holiday as well. Thank you. Happy holidays. Ben DiBiase is Director of Educational Resources for the Florida Historical Society and Archivist at the Library of Florida History in Cocoa. Christmas Eve will find me This is Florida Frontiers. Many people enjoy a feast of seven fishes as part of their Christmas celebration. Robert Casanello from robertcasanello.com looks at sport fishing in Florida. Initially, the kind of boats used in sport fishing did not have motors, did not have gas motors, of course. So they were rowboats, and they were wooden and they were heavy. And it took a pretty strong man to row, sometimes against the tide, to get out of an inlet or if the wind was whipping up, even to go up, up rivers or up current of a river. So it was a tough row to hoe to, uh, to try to fish out of wooden boats, but people did it. Also, sailboats were converted sometimes for fishing purposes, and uh, that, that made the propulsion a little bit easier. Most of the boats were wooden, uh, and they were often handmade and not very seaworthy. There were many accidents at times, and and uh, capsizes and other problems when the weather would become inclement. That was Doug Kelly, who is a contributing editor for Florida Sportsman Magazine and the author of the book, 
Florida's fishing legends and pioneers. He spoke with me about the early history of sport fishing in Florida. By the late 19th century, Florida was a destination for northern tourists. What you may not know, however, is that sports fishing was a magnet for some of these Gilded Age tourists who came to Florida. Here, Mr. Kelly tells me about some of these people. The types of people who engaged in sport fishing prior to World War II were mainly tourists who came down to Florida, really not with fishing in mind. They would come and stay at a resort because it was cold up north, just like tourists do this day. Uh, but the resorts were pretty savvy about having different revenue streams. So they would hire local fishing experts and convert them to guides if they weren't already guides. And they would take their guests out, the hotel guests and resort guests out to fish. And pretty soon the word would spread. And more and more resorts started doing it because it was popular. The fishing resources in Florida were fantastic. And people went home back north talking about what an incredible time they had on the water and all the big fish they caught. So that's how popularity of, uh, of fishing really exploded. And it was because of of destination resorts and uh, tourism interests that began running into Florida in the late 1800s and early 1900s. Infrastructure, new transportation networks like railroads and later roads for automobiles would all facilitate a greater flow of tourists into the peninsular part of the state. These same transportation networks also brought sports fishing to places in Florida inaccessible decades earlier. Doug Kelly explains. Regions such as the St. Johns River and other portions of North Florida became extremely popular in uh, the early going, and I'm talking about the late 1800s and up until 1930, 1940, uh, because of the access. Um, North Florida was closer to the mainland of the U.S., uh, and it was easy to traverse across Georgia or Alabama or um, those uh, Mississippi to come into Florida. And uh, the road systems back then, even though they were somewhat primitive, were far better than, in some cases, the non-existent roads in the southern part or even the central part of Florida. The railroad was another big factor. So uh, you just had a, a system back then where people could more easily access regions in the northern part of the state many, many years before they could ever reach, say, Miami or the Keys or, or the southwest portion. Although sport fishing during the late 19th and early 20th century may not have been widespread in Florida's tourist economy, Doug Kelly reminds us of the economic impact this type of fishing had on smaller towns and communities lucky enough to be near a popular lake or coastal inlet. I would not say that the uh, populations of towns and villages became uh, larger because of sport fishing. I do think they did become more economically uh, viable because it was a source of income uh, a person coming down to fish doesn't just stay at fish. They stay in a hotel. They go to restaurants. They uh, partake in other activities when they're not fishing, such as sightseeing and going to different iconic places and uh, what have you. So the money starts coming out of the wallet more, uh, more in indirect ways, and, of course, that impacts the economy back then just as it does now. I interviewed Doug Kelly and others for the podcast series, 
A History of Central Florida. Look for it on iTunes. That was Doug Kelly, and I'm Robert Casanello with Florida Frontiers. You've been listening to Florida Frontiers, the weekly radio magazine of the Florida Historical Society. Please join us right here again next week. Visit us anytime on the web at myfloridahistory.org and like us on Facebook at Florida Historical Society. Have a very Merry Christmas and a happy holiday season. I'm Ben Broatmarkle. Frontiers, the weekly radio magazine of the Florida Historical Society, is made possible in part by the Department of State Division of Historical Resources and the State of Florida. It's also made possible by the Jesse Ball DuPont Fund, the Rossiter House Museum and Gardens in O'Galley, and by Florida's Space Coast Office of Tourism, representing destinations from Titusville to Cocoa Beach to Melbourne Beach.